Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the program, Arise to Truth. My name is Wesley Simons. I preach for the Stony Creek Church of Christ in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Joining me on the program today, David Eirich, who preaches for the Centerview Church of Christ, Elizabethton, Tennessee. Also, Bill Haywood, who preaches for the Abingdon Church of Christ, Abingdon, Virginia. Great to have these men with us, and it's also good to have you with us by way of radio. Why not go get your Bible and pencil and paper, and for the next one hour, study with us the greatest of all books, the inspired, inerrant, perfect will of God. Now today, we're going to continue what we started Tuesday, and that is a review of a track. So we will not be taking phone calls. Now, if you wish to call and have your question written down, then Glenn will be glad to write down your question and bring it in to us. But other than that, we're not going to take any live calls as we normally do because we want to get as far along in this track as we can. And we're only going to give two days to it. We gave Tuesday to it. And so today we've got to get as far as we possibly can in reviewing the track. Well, let's go back and review just a little bit. We pointed out Tuesday how that the title was wrong. What saves? Baptism or Jesus Christ? This shows that the author of the track, Buddy Bryant, does not understand what's involved in salvation. He does not understand that God has a part in salvation and that man has a part in salvation. What would you think of me today if I would say to you, what saves? Faith or Jesus Christ? You know the answer to that question? Both. You can take the Bible, and I encourage you to do it if you have a good Bible program on your computer or a concordance. And look up the word save or saved or saves. And find out what the New Testament says saves one. You're going to find out grace is involved in saving one. Faith, the blood of Jesus. You're going to find out that repentance, confession, baptism, hope, a host of things. Now the point is this, when the Bible says a thing saves, then it's going to take that to save a person. You cannot eliminate it, neither can I. And so then for the author to say what saves, baptism or Jesus Christ, he has a misunderstanding of the Bible and the plan of salvation. In 1 Peter 3.21 we're told, that baptism does save. Now, if Mr. Bryant was where he could, we'd love for him to call in and tell us from what and how. What does baptism save from? The Holy Spirit chose to say that baptism saves. Well, since the Holy Spirit makes that declaration, you and I have got one of two choices. Either we can believe what the Holy Spirit says are denied completely. Let me read you the verse. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there's some sense, whether I can explain it or not, there is some sense in which baptism saves. We had a Baptist preacher call one time and say that a verse in the Bible taught that baptism did not save. 
And he quoted or tried to that very verse, misquoted it, left out the fact that baptism saves. And I begged him to read it correctly on the air and could not get him to read it correctly. Friends, that tells you something about a man's heart. That tells you something about a man's doctrine when he can't agree with the Holy Spirit. The speakers on this program agree with the Holy Spirit and what Jesus Christ and God Almighty have declared in the book known as the Bible. Now, in the track, he points out how that a preacher in Wichita Falls, Texas, said that this old thing of being saved by grace through faith is a man-made doctrine. If he did, he's wrong, because we are saved by grace through faith, and we will affirm that as strongly as anyone. He went into his argument about Acts 2.38, in essence, can't mean what it says, because repent is second person plural, and be baptized is third person singular, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost is second person plural, and we gave you parallel sentences Tuesday to show that we use language like that all the time. No problem. Why can't we believe what the Holy Spirit said and the inspired man Peter and other apostles said on that glorious day of Pentecost when they answered that question, what must we do with this answer? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It was right in the first century, and it's the right answer in this day and age. And so what we've got to do is realize that the Holy Spirit gave the right answer. It's just these denominational preachers don't like it. These men proclaiming man-made doctrines don't like it. Well, we love it because it's the Word of God. He said, well, now we know repentance is a command of God, and it's universal, so everybody's got to do that, while baptism is simply a specific commandment to believers only. Well, if it is a specific commandment to believers only, then it's essential. It's just the issue of who's got to do it. Now, who is supposed to obey baptism? Well, to whom was the Great Commission given? That's right. Once you understand the issue to whom the Great Commission was given to all men, then all men are to uh, be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not difficult. This man is flat out denying the, God, uh, the Word of God. Then he goes to the word ace. And he says the word ace here cannot mean in order to. Let me read his statement. The Greek word for is ace and means upon, unto, because of, but never in order to obtain. Never. Well, friends, we read you scholar after scholar Tuesday that says he's wrong. And we're not going to read all those scholars necessarily today, but I do want to read to you from the wonderful book known as the Bible. In Matthew 26, 28. And he, keep in mind now, he says this word ace can never mean in order to. Listen to what the Bible says. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, for the remission of sins. And all you got to do is ask this question. Did Jesus Christ die because sins had already been forgiven, or did he die in order that they would be forgiven? This is the same language, Greek and English. And so then the man stumbles over Calvary's cross trying to deny water baptism. And the Bible teaches clearly that one must be born of water and of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God, according to John 3, 3 through 5. All right, now, gentlemen, here's basically where we got to. And you might have additional thoughts to jump in. 
Well, Wesley, I'm going to, if it's okay, just continue on in the track and go to the next major point that he has here. And it deals with uh, very much a straw man, if I might say. And I'll explain that. He deals with Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And he raises a question concerning this passage. He says that those who hold that Acts 2, 38 says that baptism is for, that is to say, in order to obtain uh, forgiveness of sins, that is to say it's for the remission of sins, he said that those who believe that are in a dilemma. He says that, look, if you say that this man being led to be baptized, if he has a living, active faith, then he's already saved. He's got faith. But then on the other hand, if you must conclude, well, he don't have a living, active faith, or else he'd be saved, he must be a dead faith. And he says, well, of absurdity, a dead faith can't lead anyone to do anything. So he says, look, you're in a dilemma here. Baptism could not be for the remission of one's sins, because if that man has a living, active faith, leading him to be baptized, then he's already saved. Well, now let's see if we can be consistent with that type of reasoning with other passages in the Bible. For instance, in Acts chapter 10, let's take Cornelius for a moment. Now remember that Cornelius would be, of course, the first Gentile convert of the, of the Christian age, of the, the covenant of Christ. And let's notice some things here now about Cornelius. Verse 1 and 2. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now, as far as the Christian age goes, was this man in Christ? Was he a Christian? And notice my words carefully. I'm asking, is he a Christian? He's praying. He fears God. Is he a Christian? Well, no. No, he's not. Because in this vision he sees that uh, he is to send for Peter, who's going to tell him words that he needs to hear. Now, if you'll drop on down to verse 33. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee that thou hast done well that thou art come. Now, therefore, all we are here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. Now, in back in verse chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, this man had faith, but yet he wasn't a Christian. Was it a living, active faith, or was it a dead faith? You see, you can have a living faith which is leading you to obey God and doing all that needs to be done. That's right. Now go on to chapter 11, verse 14. Notice what Peter said. He is telling here, if you get the context of the 11th chapter of Acts, he is telling Jews who have been questioned why he went to teach a Gentile. He said in, ver or in part in verse 14, Who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved? So here Peter was going to teach this man so in order for him to be saved. But now my point is he had some type of faith in God. Was it a living faith? Yes. Was it an active faith? Yes. He was going to carry it all the way through and be obedient unto the things that Peter proclaimed. So, as you go back to Acts chapter 2, and you begin to say these people heard Peter on the day of Pentecost. Now, did they have faith? Well, yes. Were they saved at that point? Well, they were working toward that because that was a living, active faith that would lead them to do all that God commanded and, of course, Christ had commanded in Mark 16, 16, Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19, that they were to be baptized. And, of course, Peter told them that very thing on Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So I hope that you can see from that it was simply a straw man that he is suggesting here that in Acts chapter 2, for this man to say, 
Is it a living, active faith? Well, if it was, he was already saved. Well, that's not the case. It was a living faith. It was a faith of saying, I'm going to seek after and I'm going to do all that's required of me. And that's the type of faith that we all must have. Now, one other example here very quickly before I turn it over to Bill. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. And now we have the Philippian jailer. You may remember the background to this. Paul and Silas had been cast into prison. They had been, uh, of course, persecuted. There was a great earthquake. All the prison doors are open. The uh, chains and so forth come off the disciples and others. And the jailer, seeing that everyone, he thinks at least, is about to escape, is going to take his own life. Now, let me start start with verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now stop right there. Is this man saved? Well, of course he's not. He hasn't heard the Gospels of yet. Paul is going to teach him in just a moment. And we know according to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But my point is, is he seeking? Is he doing something? Yes. He's not saved as of yet. So the fallacy that is, if a man has some type of seeking, he has some semblance of faith in, in what he knows, that must, he must be already saved. Well, that's not, that's not biblical. Again, let's go on here. Verse 32, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord unto all that were in his house. Now, when he taught them the message, what did they do then? They believed it. And when they believed it, they acted upon the message. In verse 33, and he took them the next week and baptized them. Now, that's what most religious groups do. We're going to wait. We're going to have a baptizing in two weeks when we get more people. No, no. After he taught them, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. So all I'm trying to communicate to you is this. This man had a willing heart, and when he knew, he acted upon that. When did he receive his salvation? When he accomplished all, of course, that had been taught him. And when we start the book of Matthew and read through the book of Revelation, especially throughout the book of Acts, we're going to find that baptism was the last part that he was to accomplish in order to be saved. Again, well, on the day of Pentecost, when they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? We believe your message. Did they have a living faith? Yes. But they knew that there was something else that was lacking. And he told them to repent, to turn their, turn their attitudes, to turn from their sin, and, of course, to be baptized for the remission of sins. And that was the purpose of it. And that's exactly the case with these two. So, Bill, I just wanted to take a moment to show that really this man presents a straw case, if you will, by saying, well, if these people on the day of Pentecost, if they already had a living faith, then that shows they were already saved. No, it shows that they were acting upon what they knew. And yes, it was a living faith, but a living faith that would lead them, of course, to be saved. Well, you're exactly right, David. I think one of the problems with this particular, uh, the, the, the whole track here is the starting place. He takes a particular starting place and he approaches the scriptures to justify the beliefs that he has rather than to approach the scriptures and to simply see what the scriptures have to say on that subject. On relative to the subject of baptism, as it has been stated already, 
It's really a silly question to ask the question, what saves baptism or Jesus Christ? Would you say what saves faith or Jesus Christ? Obviously, the answer is both. And as Wesley has pointed out, if you look through the New Testament, you'll see that we are saved by faith. We are saved by baptism. We are saved by grace. We are saved by the blood of Christ. Uh, many, many things. Uh, probably, at best of my recollection, I think there's probably about at least 24, probably more than that, but about 24, I think I have a list of about 24 different things that the Scriptures say we are saved by. Here, the author of this particular track sets out to show that this is not so. And he is using this argument about faith, and he points out that in James chapter 2, verse 21, beginning, that it points out the fact that Abraham was justified by works. Referring over to Romans chapter 4, 1 through 6, where it says that Abraham was justified by faith, he says that this justification came 40 years before the sacrifice of Isaac that is mentioned in James chapter 2. Well, let me say this. What he's really done is he's missed the distinction between the concept of works in Romans and the concept of works in James. There is no contradiction here. But likewise, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, and Ephesians chapter 2, a beautiful passage of Scripture, beginning um, at about verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, <clears throat> here Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're not saved by works. James chapter 2, verse uh, 26, that says, Faith without works is dead. Excuse me. Um, yes, verse 26. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Is there a contradiction here? Not at all. One of, the way, one of the things we need to understand is how we define words and how words are defined in the New Testament. They are defined in context. You, ne you can never fully define a word in isolation. In Romans chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking about works of men. Now follow me here because I want you to see something very closely. I want you to see a point that really needs to be made. Ephesians 2, Romans 4, he's talking about works of men. In other words, things that men make up on their own. In James 2, he's talking about doing the things that God would have us to do. That's consistent with John 14, 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 14, where Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I say. And Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, where we're told that Jesus has become the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. There are certain things we must do. We must keep the commandments of God. We must obey Jesus. That's called working the works of God. When we try to endeavor to create a plan of salvation on our own, then we're trying to earn our way to heaven. At the beginning of this um, particular track, this statement is made. A preacher in the city of Wichita Falls, Texas, read one of our circulars and wrote an article in the paper saying that salvation by grace through faith, which we emphasize in our literature for forgiveness of sins, is a man-made religion. I don't believe that he said that. I don't either. But I do know this, that what this particular preacher in this track is talking about is man-made religion. Because when you try to eliminate just one thing that God says is essential, my friends, you are trying to create a man-made religion, and that's a works-oriented religion. That's right.
And so, in fact, I think that the writer of this particular track is probably guilty of the very thing he's accusing this other preacher of. And if he can substantiate to me that baptism is not essential for salvation, I'll back off. Now, we're not saying, we're not saying that baptism is not essential. We're not saying that repentance is not essential. We're not saying that, that faith is not essential. All of these things are essential. We're not saying that there's anything miraculous in the water. But what we are saying is we must stand where God stands. We must stand where the Bible stands. And the Bible says baptism is absolutely essential to salvation, Wesley. And the reason it's that way, Bill, because it's an act of faith. God asked us to do it because we love him and we trust him. And that's what we have to do. In John chapter 9, when Jesus spat upon the ground, made a clay of the spittle, put it on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash in the, bull, uh, in the pool of Siloam and come see him. Now, if he had faith in Jesus, friends, what was he going to do? Exactly that. He wasn't working his way to a healing. It was by grace. Jesus Christ offered the remedy. Same way in 2 Kings 5, when Naaman uh, was told to dip in the Jordan River seven times to get rid of his leprosy. He wasn't trying to work his way to a healing, but rather to do what God Almighty had asked him to do because he loved God. And he finally came to that conclusion and chose to do it. Now, it's a matter of doing it the Lord's way. Now, I want to go back to David's comments here just a minute, and then I want to comment on something Bill said. I want you to notice, like he said in the track, he said, in essence, in Acts 2.38, the writer of the track, he said those such as uh, the men on this program, if we say that baptism is essential, we're in a real dilemma. Let me read you the statement, and I'm going to read to you from the track now. Is the faith in Acts 2.38 dead faith, or is it a living faith? If it is a dead faith, the author, the author of the article believes it is. Then it is the same kind of faith James refers to in James 2.17, which the Lord condemns. If it is a living faith, then the people Peter spoke to had faith, living faith, before they were baptized. Either way, the author of the article is in a fix he can't get out of, end of quote. All right, now let's apply that. Baptist doctrine. Baptist doctrine says you repent and then you believe in order to be saved. Well, let me ask you, when you repent, is that a living faith? If it is a living faith, then you're saved before faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're saved before faith in Jesus Christ, you're really in a dilemma. You could, no way in the world you could be saved that way. But if it's a dead faith, then it can't be pleasing to the Lord. As a matter of fact, the truth of the matter is repentance can never come first as the Baptists teach. How do I know that? Because, my friends, even in the track itself, the man admits you've got to hear the word of God first thing. Well, what does it produce? Faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Now, what would lead one to want to repent? Faith. And if faith does not lead you to want to repent, then your, faith, uh, then your repentance would be wrong because the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews 11, in verse number 6. See, they switched the whole order. But Wesley, smarten up. Don't you realize in the Gospels, a couple of times it tells those people to repent and believe. Exactly. 
Why? Because they were sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Read Matthew 10, 1 through 6. God calls upon them to repent of their ungodliness and to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I would say to the Jews today who have a faith in God, you need to repent and believe that Jesus Christ is the answer to your sins and do what Jesus asked you to do. Now, friends, it's that simple. It's not complicated. Now, Bill also made some good comments showing that you've got to understand the difference in the kind of works that's under consideration in the various contexts of the Word of God. And a lot of people don't do that. See, a lot of times when the Bible says that one can't be justified by works, it's simply talking about works of merit, works of the law, works of the flesh, works of self-righteousness. All those works are condemned. But what about the work of faith? And by the way, the Bible calls faith a work. Is that one condemned? No, that one's included. What about the work that God's given us to repent? That one's included. What about the work that with your mouth you must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Well, that one's included too. And by the way, the Bible, nowhere to my knowledge, speaks of baptism as being a work, but you've got to be baptized. That's the only time in the plan of salvation when you're passive. Someone else is doing something to you. And they're putting you under the water and bringing you forth to arise to walk in newness of life. All right, gentlemen, do you have any more comments before we go on to the next point? No, I don't, Wesley. Uh, nothing about that. Okay. Let me read the next point hurriedly. I don't know we'll have time to get into it a whole lot before we go to our song because we are taping and we have to stop at a certain point. Let me... Uh, uh, read what he says here. In my discussion with the author of the article on, and he's got Mark 15, 16, he meant Mark 16, 16. I asked him to produce one scripture that said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth and is not baptized shall be damned. He could not produce one in his favor. Yet I gave him many that said, The believer is not condemned. John 3, 18 and 19, and John 3, 36, uh, 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 let me do it, John 3, 36, I had it right, John 5, 24, and Romans 5, 1. I think he stated that wrong, the way he's got it uh, worded. Yet I gave him many that said the believer is not condemned. I believe he wanted to say is condemned. In other words, his argument is this. His argument is, you can't show me anywhere where it says a person who's not baptized is damned. But I'd show you where believers, people who disbelieve, are damned. And he gave some of the verses that are in harmony with that, where the disbelievers are damned already. The only place I know that says a man, and I'm back to the track, that believeth and is not baptized shall be damned is found in the Mormon Bible. In 3 Nephi 11, 34, I wonder if this man's doctrine didn't come from men just as the Mormon Bible did, end of quote. Well, I'm shocked that the guy in Wichita Falls could not find a verse, not that it's necessary, to show that if you're not baptized, you're damned. I'm shocked. 
Why? Because when you read John 3, 3 through 5, the Bible makes it plain, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So I know that unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There is an exception to the fact. Now all people who are born of the water and of the Spirit enter the kingdom. Now, friends, it's not necessary to do this kind of Bible study to start with. In other words, now I've got to find a verse. Every time I find God wants me to do something in a positive way, if I don't find him condemning that in a negative way, then I don't have to do it. Well, that's ridiculous. Where would you find that kind of hermeneutical principle in the Word of God? You don't do that rearing your children. Now, Johnny, stay out of the road. Now, Johnny may go out in the road. When he does, you whip him. Yeah, but you didn't say if I got in the road, you're going to whip me. You don't have to. You're the parent. And he's to obey your authority. That's the thought. And so then we've got to do what God asked us to do. If we don't do what God asked us to do, then we're going to be in trouble. And so we want to represent them correctly. So let me read this again and give David's slant to it. And I think David's probably right. Here's what it says. And I now read the track. In my discussion with the author of the article on Mark 16, 16, I asked him to produce one scripture that said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. He could not produce one in his favor. Yet I gave many that said the believer is not condemned. John three eighteen and 19, John three thirty six, John 5, 24. Romans 5, 1, end of quote. Now, David says, here's what he's saying, and I think this is probably right. All right, I talked to the guy who wrote the article, and I told him, you can't show me where a person who's not baptized is condemned. Yet I can show you that if a man believes, he's not condemned. So then you don't have to be baptized. Okay, that's probably his, his argument. All right, that being his argument, why must one repent because it's a matter of faith why must one confess it's a matter of faith the question is who is the believer the believer is the one who obeys the lord now what about this thing of trying to find the negative of the statement well to start with it'd be ridiculous to produce the negative of every statement in the word of god that's kind of like saying and here's a parallel to mark sixteen sixteen: he that eateth and digesteth his food shall live but he that eateth not shall die you don't have to say he that eateth not and digesteth not shall die. Because, friends, if you don't eat, you don't digest. Well, if you don't believe, you don't repent. If you don't believe, you do not confess. If you do not believe, you're not baptized. And if you did, it wouldn't help you one bit, according to Hebrews 11 and verse number 6. David? Well, often we're going to find, as we read through the Bible, and I think you explained Mark 16, 15, 16 very well there, Wesley. But, you know, he refers to John chapter 3, verse 36, John 3, 18 and 19. Let me read to you just a couple of the passages. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, do we believe that? Well, of course. You know, that's not a passage when I read that I think, uh-oh, Ah, now I can't hold that that baptism is essential. Well, no. All he's saying here is he talks to the Jews, look, you've got to believe. 
Often belief stands for a synecdoche. In other words, it's one thing standing for the whole. And that's all he's saying here. You know, did you notice he didn't mention repentance? Now, he that believeth on him is not condemned. Is it belief only? Or is repentance included in that? We say, well, repentance is included in that. How do you know? Because the Bible teaches in Luke thirteen three, I tell ye nay, but except ye repent. Uh, Acts seventeen thirty, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now, now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I know that repentance is essential. Well, but this passage doesn't say that. All this passage says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. You see, belief stands for the entirety. If I believe something, then I'm going to do all that God has commanded. That's the idea. And the same way that you're going to put re repentance in this passage, I'm going to put baptism in this passage. It's the same way. That's right. You know, and, and believe me, we have no qualms with the many passages that says that faith saves. Uh, I'll add some to the passage that this gentleman didn't. Uh, well, I do see it up there. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being now justified by faith. Uh, numerous passages throughout the Bible. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Well, all those passages are true. They're right. But you see, just because the Bible says in one place, I'm saved by faith, does not negate the fact that he says in Luke 13, 3 or Acts 17, 30, that I must repent. Nor does it negate Acts 2.38 or what Jesus says in Mark 16.16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, one doesn't wash out the other. Now again, let me go back real quick to Mark 16. And you tell me how Jesus could have said this any plainer. How he could have made the point any clearer to a listener. When he told the disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned or damned. Now Wesley made the point, it would have been redundant for Jesus to have said, he that believeth not and is not baptized. Well, friends, if you don't believe, are you going to be baptized? Of course not. So if Jesus would have wanted to communicate that baptism is essential, how else could he have done it? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And is a concordant conjunction combining two parts of equal importance here. And he's saying that both are essential. Now, we come to Acts chapter 2. And let's, again, let's go back to the time frame. Jesus is ready to ascend into heaven, right? He ascends into heaven. Just a few days later, the disciples are gathered together at Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. Uh, they speak in tongues. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through about verse 4. We know that Peter later begins to preach to the people. Now again, this was but days after Jesus told them, here's your commission, here's what I want you to do. Go all, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieves, he that doesn't accept the message is going to be lost, and that's true. And then lo and behold, we find Peter preaching to these people in Acts 2, and they have the great question, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And what does Peter tell them? The very thing that our Lord and Savior told him to say. And that is, of course, they already believed. We know that when they asked, they did not deny the fact that they had crucified the Son of God. By his evidence, he had proved that Jesus was the Messiah. And he said, you've got to repent. And you've got to be baptized for the remission of your sins. 
Isn't that what Jesus says? Now, again, I, and I hope we get time to get to this, but we're not saying the water saves us. There's no power in the water. There was no power in the water that when that blind man went to the pool of Siloam to wash the clay out of his eyes, that water wasn't miraculous, mysteriously powerful, nor was the Jordan River powerful whenever Nahum was told to go dip seven times in that body of water. But it was the fact if Nahum had not dipped seven times in the river Jordan, he would have yet had his leprosy, or at least he would have died with it. When he dipped once, did he have it? Yes. Twice? Yes. Three, four, five, six times? Yes. Still had it. What made the difference? When he did what, what Elisha told him to do, and that is dip seven times. So here, as we look to this idea, the gentleman, he, he certainly throws out a quibble by saying, well, you know, you can find negatives concerning belief, but you can't find baptism. Well, as Wesley did point out, John 3, verse 3 through 5, you can. But nonetheless, won't we, will we not simply accept and love what Jesus commanded, that we are to believe? And yes, we are to be baptized, to be saved. No power in the water, saved with the blood, you betcha. But I've got to do what he commanded. And really, that's the bottom line. That's right. And what's so offensive about that? What's so offensive about the idea, let's do what the Lord commanded? And I think, David, I think you summed it up exactly right. I think it's a quibble and nothing more than a quibble. You know, it's a, it's a rather strange thing. We accept all the passages that he has quoted that show that uh, a person is saved when they believe, when they truly believe understanding that that belief is inclusive of repentance, it's inclusive of confession, it's inclusive of baptism, because it is an active faith, as James talks about in James chapter 2. It is a faith that is an ongoing faith, willing to do whatever the Lord would have them to do, because if it's not, then it's not a faith that will be pleasing to God. We understand that. But at the same time, and he's come over to Mark chapter 16, verse 16, and he is basically told us, uh, you know, that baptism is not essential, that we don't need baptism. And again, the, the point that he makes is really a, a very hollow point, uh, because as Wesley pointed out a moment ago, every time you find a positive uh, command, do you, do you have to find a negative command to uh, say that you don't have to do it? Well, that's, that's absurd. Or to say that you have to do it, do you, do you have to, uh, if you don't find a negative command, that means you don't have to do it? Uh, that's absurd. Well, he's told us that baptism is not essential, but I want you to notice something. He's not told us what to do with baptism. At least, uh, fellas, I haven't seen it here so far. He's just told us that baptism is not essential. But I'd like to know where this fellow stands. Is baptism a command? Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If it's a command, then by this guy's standards, I guess it would fall into a non-essential command. And I don't want to misrepresent him. If I, if I hit this wrong, you guys correct me. But what is Jesus' intent here? Why is Jesus telling us to do something that's not even necessary? Here in the text is very, very clear. Jesus says, believe. Now, we understand. Belief is absolutely essential. Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, for without faith it is impossible to please him. We must have this active, living faith. We must believe. Also, we must be baptized, and then we're saved. What this is saying, what he's saying in this track is, belief equals salvation. Now, there are some that would say, then you ought to be baptized. I don't even know that he stands there. But 
let me ask this question. Even if he does stand there and say belief equals salvation and then you ought to be baptized later, if you're already saved, why be saved? That would make no sense to me at all, Wesley. No, Bill, that's exactly right. Let me make this comment on positive and negative commandments. In essence, the author of this track is saying you ought to find the positive plus the negative. Otherwise, it's no good. Then I want you to think about it for just a moment. When Jesus told the blind man in John 9, go wash in the pool of Siloam and come see him. The Lord did not say, now if you don't wash, you're going to be a blind man the rest of your life. You got it? No, he didn't say that. Not at all. He gave the positive command. All he had to do is obey it to be blessed. And Wesley, if, let me interrupt you real quick. If, if Could the blind man have been healed with his eyesight if he had simply said, I do believe that, but it never washed? That's right. He'd still be blind. Everyone would agree with that. That's right. Everybody would agree he'd still be blind. Why? Because the Lord told him to do something. Why can't we apply that to the plan of salvation, folks? Hey, it's great to have physical sight. I thank God for mine daily. But let me tell you something. It's better to have spiritual sight and to do what God says. And this man had to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, the power's not in water. If someone would have seen him on the way up going to wash in the pool of Siloam, say, oh, look at that poor blind man. Someone put clay on his eyes, and he couldn't see to start with. Right, let's get a bucket of good, clean, warm water and a wash rag, and let's wash it off. And let's say they went out there and said, oh, hold it, sir. We're going to clean you up. You know what he had to have said? No, thank you. Wrong water. See, the power's not in the water. It's in doing what Jesus says. There's where the power lies. Same way with Naaman. Naaman, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cured. Well, the Lord didn't say, and if you don't, I'm telling you, you'll die a leper. The Lord didn't give that negative command. But that's what this Baptist preacher wants. And it's not in the Word of God. It is not a hermeneutical principle of understanding the Bible. Now, let me hurriedly get into this stuff. We want to get into a few more things. And also, we have uh, several of you who've called in questions that we want to try to save five or ten minutes for at the end of the program to deal with. And we'll have to basically wind it up with this uh, page here because basically all he does after we quote the few things we're going to quote here is give the wrong plan of salvation and continue to knock what the Lord said relative to water baptism and then leave the impression that faith only will get the job done. And the Bible says faith only will not get the job done. Now, let's go on and, and watch what uh, the man says. What saves, baptism or Jesus? The scriptures teach that alien sinners are saved by faith without water baptism. You know how many scriptures he gave on that, don't you? Not any. By saved, I mean one made safe by the God of heaven. No longer an alien, but a son of God, an heir of God, and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. By faith, I mean one who has trusted Jesus Christ with all of his heart for salvation. Before water baptism, I mean that faith comes before water baptism. Hence, the alien sinner is saved before and without water baptism. Well, isn't that amazing, friends? Now, take his plan of salvation. You repent first. And then you believe. Now, you're talking about a, a ridiculous, and I say in love, plan of salvation. To think that anybody could repent before he had faith is hard to believe. That Those statements were made to lost Jews 
who needed to repent for what they had done toward God and believe that Jesus Christ was the answer to their sin problem. Now he says some questions we need to ask in order to clarify water baptism for salvation. Number one, did you baptize a child of God or a child of the devil? Well, let me ask him this, and that's a ridiculous question. His, his plan of salvation is to repent and believe. After a man repents and he tries to teach him, is he trying to teach a man that's saved a child of God or a child of the devil? Now, the Bible says when you repent, there's rejoicing in heaven over the one who does repent. Of course, that's used as a figure of speech to cover every act of obedience. That's the thought. But that's not the way the gentleman uses it in his plan of salvation. Well, we baptize one who wants to become a child of God. One who wants to do what God wants him to do and wants to leave the devil behind. All right, number two, does one coming for baptism have a pure heart or an impure heart? He has a sincere heart seeking a pure heart. And that sincere heart will lead him to do what God says so his sins can be remitted when he's finally baptized for the remission of sins to rise to walk in newness of life. And then he has a pure heart. Number three, do you baptize a man with a clean soul or one who has a filthy soul? We baptize one who knows he's got a filthy soul and knows that he wants that soul washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the one that we baptize. Number four, when a person is on the way to be baptized for the remission of sins, is he being led of God or being led of the devil? He is being instructed by God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, as well as Jesus Christ, what he needs to do in order to obey the gospel of Christ so his life can be completely led by God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Then notice, if you will, number five, is a candidate for baptism condemned or is he out from under condemnation? He is one who knows himself that he is condemned and knows what the Bible says and is willing to come out from under that condemnation by putting his hands totally in the care of Jesus Christ by believing that Jesus Christ is Son of God, repenting of what Jesus says is wrong, confessing Jesus before men, and being buried with Jesus Christ in the watery grave of baptism to crucify the old man of sin, to rise to walk in newness of life. Friends, that's not new to you. If you've read the Bible, Romans 6, 1 through 6, Acts 2, 38, Mark 16, 16, 1 Peter 3, 21, Galatians 3, 27 through 29, and a host of other verses that I don't have time to give. Now watch the gall of this preacher. He says the issue in this article is not. Is baptism a command? I believe it is a command. But for what is it commanded? It makes no difference. Friends, if it's a command, it's got to be obeyed. It makes no difference to the purpose. Now you need to know the purpose. Don't misunderstand me. But once he admitted it's a command, he gave up his argument. Jesus Christ said anybody who teaches anyone to break one of his commandments would be better off if a millstone were hanged about his neck and thrown into the sea. And that's exactly what this man is trying to do with this track. Teach people to disobey the very commandments of God Almighty. Then he goes on the track, says, Is it a means of obtaining salvation? are to be declared that one is saved. The issue is not, is baptism important? Well, I sure wouldn't have got it from this article, from this track. I agree that baptism is important. 
But for what is it important? That's what we'd like to ask him. If you're saved prior to baptism, how in the world can it be important? Because it puts you in a Baptist church, which he's got to admit is not essential to one salvation, because he'd have to have you saved before becoming a Baptist. So that wouldn't be important. When I debated uh, Dewey Williams on radio, a Baptist called in and asked Dewey, said, Dewey, if we're not baptized because it's a command and it's essential, then for what reason are we baptized? He never answered the question. And I reminded him, Dewey, you never answered her question. For what reason would one be baptized? If it's not for the reason that it's a command and in order to salvation. Let Jesus answer it, and I'm going to give it to these men. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Jesus said it again in case they did not get it. He, we want to know now who's going to be saved. Jesus, tell us who's going to be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. All right, Jesus, tell us who's going to be condemned. But he that believeth not shall be condemned. Believeth not what? Anything I say, a part of which is he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, I think we would all do well just to allow the scriptures to answer his question here. His question, as you pointed out, is it? a means of obtaining salvation, or is it to declare that one is saved? And I think you'll find that is his position. But nonetheless, Wesley read Mark sixteen sixteen, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So it appears from that text to be essential to salvation, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. Then when you read Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Now remember, Jesus says, you believe and are baptized, you're saved. Now, Peter said, as we continue to add to add up all the things that inspiration had to say here about the baptism and its purpose. In Acts 2.38, he said to repent, to be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, as we began this program, Wesley pointed out from Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, that a parallel statement, I mean, it means in order to obtain, not because of, and here he says that we are to, be, to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, Jesus says it's to be saved. Not that the water saves, but it is the final act of obedience that we are to submit to in order to have our salvation. So, Jesus said that in Mark 16. Here, Peter says it's for the remission of sins. We turn on over and we read the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's all there is to it, just have faith. No. No, that's more to it than just a mere act of saying, I believe, and that's the context here. Notice verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Acts 2, 38, for the remission of sins. Galatians three twenty seven. we are baptized into Christ. We're put in Christ at that point. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 Jesus is the Savior of all those in the body. Well, he's Savior of those in the body. How do you get in the body? According to Galatians 3.27, you're baptized into Christ, into the body. And there's only one. He's the head of that body, Ephesians 1.22 and 23. So, I'm going to sum this up because we need to get some other questions real quickly here, or, or to the, the questions quickly. But the idea simply is this. He says, well, what is the purpose of, sal of baptism then? Allow the scriptures to answer that, and you'll have no trouble understanding it. That's right. You know, yesterday afternoon, I ran off some verses on my uh, computer Bible program 
on baptize, baptized, and baptism. And I came up with about 70 verses in the New Testament on the subject of baptism. And I would venture to say that I did not get them all because I just used those three words. And then there are some other passages, such as John 3, verse 5, which uh, speaks of being born of the water and the Spirit, which do not use those words. Seventy verses in the New Testament that talk about baptism. How in the world could we ever say that this subject is a subject that's not important? You know, I'm not going to take up much time here, but I would challenge our listeners. Look through the New Testament. Take out your concordance and just look at every passage that speaks on baptism and try to ascertain what is God telling me to do. Folks, it's going to take some fancy twisting and turning to miss the point. Baptism is absolutely essential for salvation, Wesley. That's exactly right, Bill. And I'm going to hurriedly answer these questions that have been called in, and then the other fellows can comment as well. Number one, and we're just going to give brief answers because we're almost out of time. We're sorry about that. How did the 3,000 get baptized on Pentecost? Where was all the water? There were many pools of water in Jerusalem, which would have been no problem. The pool of Siloam was there. So they could have found many bodies of water whereby they could have baptized these individuals. So that is no problem. Number two, what about the thief on the cross? Well, the thief on the cross died under a different law. He died under the Old Testament law. You and I, we live under New Testament law. Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ was to begin on the uh, day of Pentecost, according to Luke 24, 47 through 49. In other words, it was to start at Jerusalem. So then no problem with that. All right, number, uh, another question here. With all the religious knowledge in the world, why can't they see the Bible truth on baptism? Well, uh, it's simple if I just read the Bible and take what the Bible says, no problem. The Bible says baptism for the mission of sins, the religious world don't believe it. The Bible says that baptism saves, the religious world doesn't believe it. The Bible says that baptism washes away sins, the religious world doesn't believe it. We've got to believe what God says. Then it wants us to explain briefly Matthew 3.16. And I don't understand what part they want us to uh, explain. This is where Jesus Christ come up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit like a dove descending down upon him. Well, one thing it did, it proved that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus obeyed a commandment that was issued by God. He said, hear ye him, too. Hear ye him. That's right. All right, then another question. We're hurrying. I'm sorry about that. Uh, why was there a church split in 1906? I don't know of any church split in 1906. Now, it was recorded for the first time in 1906 by the census. It occurred prior to that over the use of instrumental music. And that split the Christian church from the Lord's church when they chose to go in error by the use of instrumental music. Then it says on the back, the school you came from uses musical instruments. I have no idea what they have a reference to. I went to the Memphis School of Preaching. They did not use instrumental music. I went to Tennessee Bible College. They did not use instrumental music. Unless they're talking about elementary school, I have no idea what they're talking about. Gentlemen, hurriedly, you want to make a comment? Oh, just one comment concerning the thief on the cross, uh, Wesley. And people, we can't be saved like the thief. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, I've got to know more than the thief could know. Romans 10, verse 9, one passage. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The thief could not do that. But yet I'm required to do that. 
The thief lived and died under a different covenant, as Wesley pointed out, and his example of salvation is not one I can follow. One other question. They want us to explain 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-five, that there should be no schism in the body. Amen to that. But that the members should have the same care one for another. Friends, that verse alone ought to tell you that all these many churches cannot be right. There is only one church. There is only one Lord. There is only one faith. There is only one baptism. Why put that in there? Baptism is not important. One hope, one God, and so forth. We believe in all those ones. We're here trying to promote the oneness of the church, the oneness of Christ. We want you to be one in Christ Jesus. We want Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life. How is that going to occur? When you hear Jesus Christ, when you repent, or believe what Jesus Christ says, and repent of what Jesus says is wrong, confess Jesus Christ, and be baptized into the death of Christ to rise to walk in newness of life. And Jesus will add you to his church, not a man-made church. You won't be a Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, any of those. You'll be simply a Christian. Won't you do it? Won't you love your soul enough to think about it? And may God richly bless you as you continue to study the greatest of all books, the inspired, inerrant, perfect will of God.